All right. Acts chapter 16 is where we are. Chapter 15 is, uh, it ends with, this, this sounds weird, chapter 15 ends with the start of Paul's second missionary journey. And once again, he's sent out by the church in Antioch, but this time he takes Silas along with him because there was this conflict that occurred, a little beef that occurred between John Mark and Barnabas. So they went their separate ways. Paul and Silas head out. Uh, Acts 15 closes by saying, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then chapter 16 picks up where that leaves off by saying, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. You can kind of know when it hasn't happened. It's like, wait a minute, I, I want that, please. Okay, so what we see is as Paul travels about, he seemed to always be on the lookout for uh, a few good men, so to speak. He would look for these guys he could train up. And so there were guys like Titus and also Timothy that he would find. And it's thrilling. It's always thrilling to find young men who have a hunger for God's word and a desire to serve him. When you find people like that, young women or young men like that, capitalize on it. They're kind of, they seem to be few and far between, unfortunately. And so here we have Paul finding Timothy. He was one of those guys. Each one of us should always be looking to train up our replacement. Paul would later write to Timothy and say this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see this idea of Paul saying, look, I've got the baton. I'm going to hand it to you. And then you need to find somebody to hand it to next. And it seems like there's not a lot of people who want to grab the baton sometimes. So if you're in a ministry and you don't have somebody, start praying that God would bring that person to you. Because if we don't duplicate ourselves, we get into trouble. And, and we want to continually do that. Look for faithful people. Uh, we learn a little bit about Timothy from what's written here. Um, it tells us that he was a disciple. That means he was a believer. He was well spoken of by those who knew him. That's always a nice thing, isn't it? Uh, his mom was a Jewish Christian, and his dad was a Greek, uh, but apparently not a believer. Now, according to Jewish rabbinical law, because his mom was Jewish, that also meant Timothy would be seen or viewed as Jewish, which is why Paul asked him to get circumcised. Verse 3 explains that they're going to be going to places where there would be uh, Jewish people who somehow would know that Timothy's dad was Greek, and, and because of that, the subject of circumcision would, would keep coming up. I find it odd to imagine how that conversation happens. <laughs> I, I don't mean to get weird here, but I'm just thinking when I meet people, that's not usually something that comes up. Apparently in their culture, that came up from time to time. So, But the fact that Timothy was willing to go through such a painful procedure as a young adult, tells us a lot about his commitment to Christ. Especially in light of verse 4, which reminds us of a letter they were carrying with them to take to all the places that they visited 
which came as a result of the Jerusalem Council, which basically made it clear that a person does not need to be circumcised to be saved. It kind of makes you wonder if Timothy got to read that letter before. You know, you know. oh, by the way, we have this letter. We're going to be taking it to places and reading it. I'm like, you can picture him kind of wincing every time the letter's read. Sorry. I know I'm weird. But the truth is, there's something about Paul having Timothy do this that, that seems like a bit of a head-scratcher in light of what this letter concluded. And we're going to talk more about that at the end. At any rate, the contents of the letter continue to be an encouragement to all the churches that it was read in. And verse 5 says, So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then we come to verse 6, which is admittedly a little weird. It says, And they went through the region of Persia or Pergia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And you read a verse like that and you kind of go, Huh. Now, there is some debate about what geographical area is actually being referred to here, but that's not the weird part. The weird part is the way that it matter-of-factly just states that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in that region, so they just passed through it. At first glance, that sounds kind of wrong. Right? Why would God prevent a region of people from hearing the gospel? And so many times when we read something like this, our inner judge kind of kicks in, and we're tempted to put God on trial. Um, we do not put God on trial. He is the potter. We are the clay. When we come to things like this, faith is required. Trust is required. We don't know the mind of God. Sometimes his will is revealed, and sometimes it's concealed. We have to trust what we don't know about him. I'm sorry, we have to trust what we do know about him to understand the things we can't figure out. So for me, I know God has treated me much better than I deserve. God loved me enough to send his innocent son to the cross to die in my place. I know this to be true. And that tells me plenty about who God is. Sometimes we have to look to the cross to be kind of like our true north. Um, like you would almost look at a compass to find out what's true. And the cross does that for me. When I think about the cross, when I consider who God is, what he's done there, it tells me everything I need to know so that when I come across passages like these that don't make sense, I can go, wait a minute. You know, I know the whole story here. Well, if verse 6 was tough for you, buckle up, because verse 7 is going to be the same way. It says, and so they passed through those regions, and it says, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. <laughs> so it's like, what's going on? The whole Trinity's involved here. They're like, you know, they're, they're try- we want to get to our destination. We've got this plan. We've got this mapped out. And, and somehow God keeps putting up road close signs and detour signs. And, and we're not able to, to do anything we want to. So verse 8 says, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Finally, they get a green light, right? Destination, Macedonia. They loaded up the truck and they moved to Macedonia. Philippi, that is. That's where they go. And I can tell you, from just experience, there are times when I want to talk to somebody about Christ, and it's like I've hit a brick wall. 
nothing's happening. And then it's almost as though somebody's waving their arms and going, come over here and talk to me. And I'll go, okay, and I'll do that, and it and it works. And I don't understand God's timing, but I know it matters. And so these regions that, that, that they passed through, that they were forbidden to go into, according to chapters 18 and 19, they'll get to them. You know, when God's timing is right, people go back there and they get evangelized and all of it happens. But for now, God had priority in Macedonia that took precedent over these things. And that's where they went. You may have also noticed in verse 10, the author, Luke, of the book of Acts, up until this point, he keeps saying they did this, they did that. Now he switches to we. Uh, And that means that Luke has now joined them on their journey, most likely. So now it's you've got Luke, Paul, Silas and Timothy are traveling together. So verse 11 says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. doesn't say how many days, but it sounds like it was, it was more than a few. I like the fact that they didn't dilly-dally, as my, as my dad used to say. Uh, they weren't lollygaggers, right? They, they got right on it. God said, I want you to go, and they went. So it was d- different than what my kids were like when they were growing up. Uh, they did what they were told immediately. I like that. They went. But I'm thinking that I would have that expect- expectation that when I got to town, there would be a man standing on the edge of town waving his arms, you know, and, and calling me over to say, hey, you know, this is I'm the guy from the vision. Come help me. That's not what happens. <laughs> they have to wait. They get there, they hurry there, and then they wait. They were there several days. But notice that they still sought out opportunities while they waited. They didn't just sit on their hands in their hotel room waiting for a knock on the door, which is what I usually kind of, I don't know why, but I think that way. It's like, all right, I'll just kind of wait for God to show me what he wants to do. They went out seeking opportunities. So sometimes when when we go to do things like this, we have to take that first faith-filled step before the sea kind of parts. And, and that's what they went, went and did. On verse 13, it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. They went out looking for opportunities. And evangelism can happen through the everyday conversations that we engage in with people we come across. So they just sat down in a group full of people, started talking. I can't tell you how many times this happens for us, and I love that. We'll go to you know, places like O'Kane's, we like to stand around the fire pits out there and get into conversations. And we're just talking to people. And pretty soon, it's funny how it works, but there's these people on the outskirts and, and they're listening. And sometimes they hear what we're talking about and they're like, I'm out of here. You know, they run the other way. You know, I'm on to a new fire pit. But sometimes they do that, you know, that thing where you just kind of like sidle over to that group, you know, like you were there the whole time, you know, pretend like you were in it. And they start listening and talking and engaging. And we have these these things. You never know where these conversations may lead, and you never know who might be listening. So our speech is to be seasoned with salt all the time. Verse 14 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that verse. Verse 15 says, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to stay at my house. And she prevailed upon us. 
So God prevents these guys from going to the two places they really wanted to go to, has them hurry to Macedonia for an important appointment where they met a woman named Lydia, whom God wanted to hear the gospel. It tells us that she was a worshiper of God or a God-fearing woman, but she wasn't a Christian yet. She'd never heard the gospel. And I love verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the words being spoken. So beautiful to me. Have you ever considered that God did that for you? He sent someone to your location and made sure that you would be at the right place, the right time to hear a message of a Savior who died for your sins in order that you might be saved. And he opened your heart to hear those words of love from him. How cool is that to think about? And maybe, just maybe, God wants you to do the same thing in return. He wants to send you out to a place where you would speak these things and somebody else would hear those words of life. Well, Lydia believed and was baptized along with her household. Uh, the fact that she was a seller of purple goods, that apparently uh, purple was really expensive then and, and hard to get. So if you were really rich, you would buy purple things. I'm glad I didn't live in because I don't want purple things at all. <laughs> but this was a big deal then. So she was, she was well off and she probably had a nice place for them to stay at. So she offered her home to them. And in fact, the newly established church would end up meeting in her home soon thereafter. And I just want to say that there's people that God has given a gift of hospitality to. Many of you open your homes regularly for the church to come and gather. God bless you for that. Thank you so much that we have these, these wonderful people with these gifts and they use them to serve the church. She was one of these people. So God gives them their first convert and also a nice place to stay while they're in town. And, um, and that's good because their work in Macedonia isn't done. There, there's plenty more for them to do, which we'll get into in, you know, later weeks. So that's kind of the, the narrative. And, and then there's a couple things I want to look at as, by way of applying it. The first one is, is this. When doors close, trust God. It's pretty simple, right? Proverbs 16.9 says this. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. We can make all the plans in the world we want to. But ultimately, God is moving us in a direction and his will and his plan and his purposes will prevail. I imagine for these guys, it would have been really frustrating to, to kind of move out with this. You know, we're going on our second journey where they're excited. They're anticipating what's going to happen. All right, we'll go over there. You know, OK, we'll go over there. You know, no, we won't do either of those things. That, that can be super discouraging and disillusioning. And the reason that I know this is because this happened to us as a church last year. <laughs> I just it's like I'm putting this together and I'm scratching my head thinking, hey, this looks kind of familiar. We had two opportunities last year that we really wanted to make happen as far as church planting goes. When we started this church, I mean, immediately we wanted to plant. That's kind of weird, but that was always in our heart to do. And so we had two two different things that popped up last year. The Riverwoods was one of them. Um, Solid Rock was another one. Both amazing opportunities. Both seemed like it would just be perfect if we could get there. And both of them ended up being closed doors. And that's frustrating at times. Um, but just like in the narrative today, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is not yet. And I'm hoping that both of those scenarios might be not yet. 
because the opportunity is still there. And maybe there'll be a time when we can get there and still do, do the work that God's called us to do. But we won't get to find out till later. That's the way it works. There will be times in your life where you are seeking the Lord with all your heart and wanting to do his will, and you'll run into a closed door. When that happens, don't give up hope. Wait for the Lord. You know, you've heard, you've all probably heard the old saying, sometimes God opens a door, sometimes he closes a door, and sometimes he makes us wait in the hallway. This is one of those hallway times where you just have to wait. And if you're like me, I don't, I don't want to wait. I want to try to bust the door down. We did that with Riverwoods. I mean, we're like, okay, maybe a battering ram. You know, maybe if we just keep pounding on it and pounding on it, something will happen. Maybe a catapult or a Trojan horse. And we were thinking of every, everything we could, and it was a closed door. It was a positive stop. So we can just strive and strive and strive, or we can wait. And I love this verse in, in Isaiah 40 that talks about those who wait. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, not exhaust themselves, renew their strength. They shall mount up when the time, once they've waited, once the, once the Lord shows up, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what happens when we wait. When the time comes, it'll all work. And that's what happened in Lapine for us. You know, we, we, we tried, didn't work. We waited. And now all of a sudden this thing opened up that I don't want to say it was easy, but it was easy. Uh, you know, comparatively speaking, it's been like easy, almost like, uh, you know, the doors are open and we're just kind of getting pushed through them. The funny thing is uh, Macedonia, by the way, if you were going to travel there from where these guys were going, when you're going there, there's a, there's a headwind. It only takes two days to get there. You're just moving right along. To go back the other way, it takes five days because you're against the wind. Lapine has felt like, like just we're being pushed along by the wind. And it's opened up and it's worked amazingly, better than we could have ever imagined. Because God's timing said, that's, that's the priority now. You're going to bypass these places for now. This is where you're going. When that changes, I'll let you know. All right? If God has closed a door in your life, patiently trust him and remind yourself of what is true. Does God want what's best for you as his child? Yes. Does he know things you don't know? <laughs> Absolutely. Is his plan perfect? You bet it is. Can you trust him? Of course. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a, is a fridge verse. If you're the kind of person that, that, that worries and strives and doesn't, doesn't want to wait, trust in the Lord with all your heart. How much? Yeah, some of it, most of it, all of it. If you're trusting Him with all of your heart, there's no room for you to be worrying about other things. I love the old, the old phrase, you're either worshiping or you're worrying, but you're not doing both at the same time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I am so good at that. And it gets me nowhere. It's exhausting. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all of them. That way, I acknowledge Him. That way, I acknowledge Him. That way, I acknowledge Him. No matter which way I'm going, I'm acknowledging Him. He's in this. And it says when we do that, He will make straight our paths. I like straight paths. <laughs> They're so much better than the other kind. And I've, I've tried to go down the other ones far too often. I picture the scene in Princess Bride when, you know, that's the kind of path that I'm taking, you know, as you will. 
lives. You know, that's those paths aren't fun. I don't know why I think that way, but I do. <clears throat> okay, so the first takeaway is when doors close, trust God. The second takeaway is this. If you're a note taker, it's longer, sorry. Be willing to endure inconvenience and discomfort so that others can come to Christ. We've already noted the inconvenience they faced by, you know, they put the coordinates in their GPS and they kept hearing recalculating, recalculating, you know, as they went on their journey. That was inconvenient, but there's another pretty good example of dealing with inconvenience and discomfort in this account, and his name is Timothy. Um, What he went through as an adult would not have been an easy or pleasant thing to do at all. And Timothy could have easily appealed to the decision reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. You know, that's what I would have been doing. I'd be like, Paul, you go pound sand. Let's read this letter together again. You know, this is what it says. It's like, no, I am not going to do that. He could have thrown down his free free in Christ card and said, in Christ, I'm free there. I mentioned earlier that this is a bit of a head scratcher, especially coming from Paul, because right around the same time he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And if you're familiar with that, he goes, he goes toe-to-toe with people that were trying to tell Titus he had to be circumcised. I mean, he gets it's some really strong language. It's kind of, I mean, you can read it yourself. I won't say it. But he, at one point he's like saying, I wish they would just do something. And I'm not going to read it because it just sounds bad. But, but he was like very strong in his language about what he thought of these people and what he thought they should do. He, he was um, vehemently defended Titus's right to not be circumcised. And then he tells T- Timothy, but you need to go do this. Like, what, what gives, Paul? And the answer is just simply this. He wanted to make sure that other people had a clear path to the Savior. That's it. This was not a salvation issue, but it was a cultural issue, a big one. And neither Paul or Timothy wanted that to get in the way of a soul being saved. So beautiful to think that. Do we care about people's eternal souls like that? I mean, I'm I'm convicted when I read that. They were willing to go through, I mean, something really hard so that somebody else could come to Christ. And both Paul and Timothy were this way a lot. They were willing to personally sacrifice so that other people wouldn't be hindered from Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says in in 1 Corinthians 9, that I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. What are you willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? What inconvenience and discomfort are you willing to face? What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to become all things for all people that they might be saved? That, by the way, doesn't mean that we pretend to be like them. That I think sometimes we try to think about what it means to become all things to all people. Like, so if I were to like go into a room full of youth, youths, I wouldn't like turn my hat, uh, you know, backwards and walk in and say, you know, how do you do, fellow kids? That, that wouldn't work at this point in my life. They would, they would figure it out. They would be like, you're an imposter and we, we know it, right? People don't like fakers. We're supposed to be the same person wherever we go. That can be a challenge for some people, right? If somebody were to follow you to church on a Sunday morning from work or from, you know, the, the golf course or wherever you hang out during the week, if they were to walk in here and follow you and see you in here, would they wonder what's going on? Would they be confused? I mean, it's like, who are you and what have you done with Dave? You know, and I use Dave because there's so many of them. You, you don't, you don't know which one I'm, I'm referring to. 
That'll mess with you all day, won't it? It's like, why are you, why are you, why are you talking like that? Why are you acting like that? Like, blink twice if you need help. It's like, who are you? You know, is it, is it like that? One of the things I love about this church is that it's okay to be who you are. Now, we don't want you to stay the way you are. We want you to press into Jesus Christ. We want you to become more and more like our amazing Savior all the time. We don't want you to be the same person a year from now than you, than you are today. But it's okay to be who you are right now, and you don't have to fake it till you make it. I think that's the strategy of a lot of Christians. Like, well, I'll just pretend, and hopefully nobody will notice. I see that in so many churches. We don't have to pretend. I felt this pressure one time, um, you know, and um, I remember it, it was I was uh, getting ready to be an elder at a different church, not this one. I felt the pressure, as many pastors do, to look and act the part and to force my family to look and act the part because, you know, that's important if you're trying to impress people. And it all came crashing down for me one Sunday morning. I was going to be introduced to the congregation as a, as a future elder. And so in typical faker fashion, I got all dressed up for the part. Uh, that morning I decided I better wear a pastor outfit, <laughs> whatever that is. I'm not wearing one now. I'm wearing what I feel comfortable wearing. So I put on, I, I used to work for a copier company in Spokane, and they made us wear these ridiculous blazers. They made, they thought it was more professional if you came in wearing like a blazer and a tie and slack. So they bought these things for us and I had it in my closet. Uh, it was this weird navy blue thing with these gold buttons. I mean, really <laughs> fakey looking gold buttons. I looked like Captain Steubing from the love boat, you know, <laughs> but I felt like gopher. You know, if you're, if you're young, you have no idea, but it, when my proud moment came to stand and, and wave to everybody, you know, I just remember thinking I felt so stupid. I could almost hear the father saying, Brent, what are you doing right now? Why are you doing this? You look ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you're, you're being a poser right now. That is not what it means to become all things to all people. That's pretending to be someone that you're not. And people really don't like that. That's part of the reason why people call Christians self-righteous and call us hypocrites. Because we need to be who we are. I love that I can be me up here when, I, when I'm teaching. I, I, when I, I used to not be that way. I mean, it was like you, you tried to be, you know, fit this mold. And it's so refreshing to be myself. If you come to my house or you see me at O'Kane's around a fire pit or wherever we go, this is pretty much the same guy you'll get. I know that's it's like, great. We won't go to, we don't want to hang out with you, but it's, it's the same. And I like that because I wasn't that way for a long time. You know, and when your kids see that kind of thing, that's ugly. Why are you acting like this over here, Dad, but over here like this? Sorry, thinking of stuff that I shouldn't be thinking of. Here we go. Paul is simply telling us to consider our audience and find a way to connect with them. Timothy had to do what was necessary to reach Jewish people. That's who he was going to be with. When missionaries go to foreign countries, they've got to assimilate into that culture. So they have to find ways to do that. When we're talking to people out in the world, we need to think this through a little bit. You know, when Paul was around Jewish people, he quoted the Bible a lot. When he got around Greeks, he actually sometimes quoted their philosophers. He was always Bible-based, always speaking the truth of God's Word, but he would mix it up a little bit as far as the way he would, he would go about it. We need to use language 
that makes sense to the person we're speaking to. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you start speaking Christianese without realizing it. You start talking about traveling mercies and hedges of protection and, and getting your worship on and all these weird things we say. And it's like to the people in the world, they're going, what are you talking about? Hedges of protection? It's like, yeah, we need a, we need a hedge of protection. It sounds like that's a weird to think about that. I mean, those are the weird things we say and think are normal. They're not. They're weird. Yeah, we know what they mean, but they don't. So, so the way you speak to people matters. Anything we can do to remove potential stumbling blocks from people that we're trying to talk to about the Lord, we need to do. And, and that might mean you got to rethink some of the things, the liberties that you enjoy in your life or the things you believe strongly in that may not have to do with the gospel. I'm not trying to step on toes, but your freedom to use alcohol, that might be something to throw out. Your political bent, if that's going to alienate you from half of the world, I, I have strong political beliefs, but I want to make sure that I don't lose half my audience because of them. Hot button cultural issues that you know are just going to cause a fight the minute they bring them up, set those to the side for the sake of the gospel at times. doesn't mean we don't have strong opinions. We don't pray for these things. We don't you know, vote. We want to do all those things. But, but think about who we're talking to and what we need to put aside. The gospel is a hard enough thing to get past. When you tell somebody they're a sinner, hell-bound, in need of a Savior, believe me, that's a big enough offense for somebody to get over right there. So we, we, we are all about adapting our method. Totally fine. Adapt your method. Never adapt the message. The message stays consistent. The gospel is the gospel. We don't tweak it for our audience. It remains the same. Be humble, be kind, be respectful, be generous, be loving, but preach the truth of the whole gospel to people. That's what saves. One of the things that I love that inspires me from this passage is the obvious love that Paul and Timothy had for their God and for the people that they came in contact with. Here are two guys who fully understand the gospel. They understand that if the Son of God sets you free, you're free indeed. And yet, what do they do with their freedom? They offer themselves as living sacrifices to go out and serve other people. Have you ever noticed how Paul repeatedly referred to himself as a slave or a servant when he wrote his letters? He was a free man, and yet he used that language. Why would a free person refer to himself in that way? Well, we actually get a clue in the Old Testament. There's two parallel passages, one in Exodus 21 and one in Deuteronomy 15, and it describes the process that a freed slave goes through if they want to willingly stay to serve their master. Deuteronomy 15.12 says, If a slave is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all, which is like a ice pick kind of thing. You shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. That's kind of weird imagery, but the idea is clear. A person who was a slave becomes free, but because they love their master and they love his family, they choose to remain a slave, like a bond servant of love. And consider the images associated with this. It just blows my mind. Nails driven through flesh. Blood on a doorframe, permanent piercings with holes and scars forever. 
That's not a coincidence. Those are the very things that our Savior went through to purchase us. Beautiful. Jesus went through that to be with us, and Paul and Timothy thought it nothing to do the same in return. You have been set free if you're a Christian. What will you do with that freedom? How will you use it? Who will you serve? This table that we have here today reminds us of what our Savior did for us. It was his body that was pierced. It was his blood that was shed so that we could go free. Amazing, amazing thing he's done for us. He wants us to remember what he's done. This table is set for believers. If you're a Christian, come and enjoy and remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. Father, thank you for uh, the amazing narratives that we have in the book of Acts that challenge us to, to look at these lives that were given fully to you for the service of your kingdom. Lord, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to um, be unusable to you. And so, Lord, please take each one of us with the gifts you've given us, uh, with the strengths and, and the weaknesses even, Lord, and help us to rely fully on you to go out and serve in this church body and in this community, Father, that many, many people, many souls would come to Christ. Lord, if there's something in our lives that, that we know is a hindrance or a stumbling block for somebody out there to come to you, Lord, help us to gladly throw it away, to put it aside for the sake of the gospel. Thank you, Father, so much that you opened our hearts to hear the message that there is a God who loves us and wants relationship with us. And you paid, paved the way through the cross by Jesus going there for us to have relationship with you. Help us to trust fully in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.